This is Ian Perry. Welcome to Keeping Green, the show where we discuss environmental topics in southern Alberta and the surrounding region. We broadcast from the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land and in Métis Region 3, 90.9 FM, and around the world at cjsw.com. Today I speak with Kevin Van Tegum, author of the new book, Wild Roses Are Worth It. We discuss the new user fees in the Kananaskis country, and we also get into cattle ranching and what the future of free-ranging bison could look like. Stick around! Well, I have uh, had a chance to to read through most of your book. Um, It's a great collection of articles written at different times, uh, depending on what was going on here. It's a great place for anyone to start if they want to get a really good idea of conservation issues in this area. Um, You've put so many arguments uh, so well. But I did reach out to you in the first place on account of what's going on in the Kananaskis country, which... I don't believe you touched too heavily on in your book, and of course, the recent developments um, would not have made it into your text. We're seeing high traffic volume and, and frankly, heightened abuse in uh, the Kananaskis, and we're coming under new user fees starting June 1st. But I'd like to catch your thoughts on this new user fee. It's complicated, and of course, we don't have all the information that we need. Yeah. Uh, there's the popularity of the area is good news in the sense that it means that uh, Albertans have wakened up to the beauty and diversity of their backyard. And uh, that's all good. Mm. Because, because um, you know, if you don't know about it, you won't care about it. If you don't care about it, you won't you won't fight for it. And, and we certainly need people uh, fighting for the surviving natural values of this province. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's a good thing. Um, but you know, the, uh, the downside is that a lot of the people that are out in the Kananaskis now um, aren't used to spending time in the outdoors. They don't uh, come from any sort of uh, family tradition of it. They're sort of first timers, yeah. And they're um, uh, they're naive, inexperienced. Sometimes make big mistakes and uh, just you know uh, leave potentially a trail of havoc simply because they. They've come to a new activity, and that is a problem. Mm. Now, the problem that I see with the uh, user fee debate is that we partly, we probably wouldn't be dealing with it if the government hadn't so severely cut the budget of parks and 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 environment uh, in the last couple of years. So, mm. so that it's a it's a bit of a shell game, and that there was always funding to cover the cost of maintaining roads and the used areas, cleaning the garbage, all these sorts of things. Cruise. Uh, that's always been funded, and uh, uh, the need for it has not increased that much because use tends to be concentrated in certain areas. Mm. Um, but when you cut the budget uh, at a time that there's a pandemic and everybody's discovering the outdoors going out there, yeah, you've seen a collision of, of um, unintended consequences. Right. User fees are not that new. Um, Banff National Park runs itself on user fees. Uh, it's not a bad idea. If you, but you need to think it through. And one of the problems with uh, user fees is they can be a bit exclusionary. Uh, if 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 you're a you know a single parent raising kids on a you know a, a minimum wage type of income in the inner city or something like that, uh, paying 
$90 a year to get into Kananaskis might be the um, one hill that you just can't climb. And so basically you just, uh, that, that fee deprives you and your family of connection with nature in one of the most beautiful parts of the province. So that needs to be thought through, and uh, I don't see any indication that the government has thought it through. The other thing that is really concerning uh, is that the current government helped uh, was helped to get elected by um, very hostile people hmm. who are uh, involved with motorized recreation, and they, they got angry because they were excluded by the previous government from the new castle park down near Waterton. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they slandered the the previous environment minister. They uh, spread all kinds of nasty rumors, and they basically they went to war. Uh, and the current environment minister uh, rode that wave to electoral success and, uh, and to his new job. But he owes them. He owes them politically. And so what we're seeing now is that if you're a Calgarian or from the Bow Valley and you somebody that does low-impact activities in the Kananaskis. You drive up the Peak Road, park at a developed uh, trailhead, and go for a walk with your family up on a on, a, on an existing trail, and walk back walk back out, and then go home, leaving no impact or virtually no impact. You're paying for all of the uh, costs of managing uh, the impacts of recreation in Kananaskis country. If you're an off-road vehicle user who goes into um, the disastrous corner of Kananaskis country called McLean Creek mm. and and makes uh, wreaks havoc on all those uh, landscapes there with your heavy vehicles, mm. you don't have to pay. You've been exempted. And this is payback. It is certainly it comes across to me as payback from Jason Nixon to uh, the people that helped him get the election by um, fighting dirty for him. So this is this one part that really bothers me. There, there's a, there's a social equity issues on these fees from a number of dimensions. Strictly speaking, um, the provision of outdoor recreational opportunities is a public service that a, a gov- that a, a society should be able to expect of its elected government should be willing to pay taxes to support, and there should be no user fee or filter. You, we, should, we should have free access to our uh, public lands as long as we aren't causing any serious havoc out there. And the reason that it should be free is because we pay taxes, and it should come out of our taxes. Mm. Um, we have a government that doesn't believe in taxes, and so they are trying to shift everything to user fees. But what they're doing is then they're privileging off-road vehicle users, and they're privileging the well-off at the expense of other Albertans. Uh, so there's inequity all over the place there. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really solve the problem of what do we do with the fact that our wild places are becoming so popular and starting to harm them. Um, I would suggest that it's probably time to look at our whole eastern slopes mm. and rethink them. Yeah. I was... They have a critical function providing us with water. Yeah. That is our watershed that, that, that provides virtually all the water the province of Alberta uses is the eastern slopes. And bad land use damages its ability to produce water. And it's our prime recreational environment. And if there's a high demand for outdoor recreation and a high need for water security, maybe it's time to rethink things like logging, off-roading, certainly coal mining, and really ask ourselves whether we shouldn't be protecting the entire eastern slopes as a place for nature, as a place for water production, and as a place for Albertans to escape 
you know, their jobs, their cities, their stresses, and get out there and reconnect with nature and, and beauty. Uh, why not? Um, we live in a society now where uh, capital and labor are mobile. We hear people complaining about all the young people leaving Alberta. Well, that's an example of mobile labor. If there's, if you're not happy where you are, you just go find somebody else where you can be happy because you don't need to live to need to live within a block of the factory anymore. You can work from home. You can work in a lot of different um, locations, and so people move to where they want to be. Hmm. Um, strip mining our our eastern slopes, uh, riddling them with uh, eroding vehicle trails. Uh, scraping all the trees off and with these big, massive clear cuts is not a way to make this a desirable place to live. So there's an economic case from uh, 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 the, the new economy, the, the, the mobile capital and mobile labor economy that we live in. There's a water security case, turning a biological diversity case, and then there's a recreational case to be said. Um, our eastern slopes are treasures, and we got to start treating them that way instead of abusing them uh, to pieces and then uh, finding more ways to rake money uh, out of them by starting to charge fees for people who are trying to enjoy the fragments that Mm. remain. You're listening to my conversation with author and environmental advocate Kevin Van Tegum regarding the new user fees in the Kananaskis country that went into effect on June 1st. Now here is more of my conversation with Kevin Van Tegum. Well, you you hit on an interesting point because it's never been clear to me exactly what the Kananaskis is supposed to be. And it's it's not clear to this day, even amidst this new development, because it's an improvement district, but it's also a collection of provincial parks and day-use areas, and it's crown land. Um, at least Banff is clear-cut. It's a park. The same laws apply no matter where you are within its boundaries, but Kananaskis continues to be kind of a uh, a mixed bag, if if you will. And so maybe the time has come to cut from the idea of Kananaskis all of this heavy abuse and to make it a place that is more in the image of Banff, where wildlife and and then human enjoyment are paramount and where extractive industries and uh and then higher impact activities are not welcome, and those places can become something of their own entity. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at the history of the Eastern Slopes, uh, in the shortly after the 1940s, or the late 1940s, Alberta was a very poor province. Uh, you know, we were coming out of a war, coming out of a depression, uh, didn't really have this... Uh, oil wealth that developed in the subsequent years. So Alberta was a poor province, and we had sort of a tiger by the tail because it had some huge fires on the eastern slopes. And so in the late 1940s, the provinces of Alberta joined up with um, the federal government and uh, established what was called the Eastern Rockies Forest Conservation Board. And that board was both federal and provincial, and it managed our eastern slopes, all of them including Kananaskis country. Um, they had a whole bunch of federal money, which was the attraction for the province, uh, and they were banished for watershed protection, which was the attraction for the federal government, because they, they, you know, they, had, they had just come out of the Dust Bowl years a, a decade earlier, and they knew how important water was, and it all comes from us. So that was the model for 20 years. 
little bit more than 20 years. It ended in the early 70s when the Lougheed government came in. And so, under that model, uh, that's, that's the, the eastern slopes that I bonded to as a child. That's the eastern slopes that many of my baby boom generation grew up in. Uh, there was no uh, large-scale commercial logging. Uh, there was, uh, of course, in those days, it was before the off-road vehicle craze and uh, and all of the goofy gizmos that have been created for people to play with in the woods. Mm. And um, it was uh, it was it was the golden time. The, the, the eastern slopes were in in good shape. The forests were uh, protected. The um, wildlife wasn't in great shape because it was a different era. We were coming out of an area where the population had really beat back. But there was clear water running out of those streams, out of those valleys, and uh, forested headwaters, and it was just golden country. There was all these campgrounds that got built by the Eastern Rockies Forest Conservation Board up and down the trunk road. Hmm. They were free campgrounds, but they were well-maintained by government staff. That's where we went camping. So there's a model. If you look into the rearview mirror, which is not usually a good place to look for the future, in this particular case, there's a model that could maybe serve us well in the future. Because what happened was when Lougheed came in, of course, he was kind of anti-federal. It was, Alberta was anti-federal at the time. So they did away with this federal partnership and said, we can do it better ourselves. And Kananaskis country, the vision there was that there would be multiple use, but it would be managed to a high standard to protect the recreational and, and watershed and wildlife values. Mm. And it was actually a really good vision. I mean, if, 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 if multiple use can work, it's got to be shown to work somewhere. There's got to be a model, and that was what Kananaskis country was going to be. It would be a mix of parklands, multiple-use lands. There was going to be one area dedicated for the off-road vehicle users, but, which weren't many of them, and most of them were in jeeps and things. Mm-hmm. didn't get very far. So they, they tried to come up with a model that would work. But the Lougheed years ended, and in came the Klein years. And the Klein years, and, and subsequently, was all around, let's, Reduce the role of government. Let's reduce regulation. Let's reduce taxes. Um, let's let people be free, and let's profit from all the stuff that we got on the land. And so that model of working multiple use uh, land use that, that still sustains the enduring values of the place that got sort of shoved aside. Uh, it was passe now. It was time to make some money and get out of people's lives. And so that's what we've had. We've had decades of benign neglect and resource exploitation that have started to erode that original model. But in terms of what Kananaskis country is supposed to be, it was supposed to be a model of how to do it right. Um, mm-hmm. It no longer is. You know, uh, the current debate is over opening them up for coal. There's so many people angry and involved in that that it's, there's a message in in the the reaction, and the message is that it's time for us to actually step back, look at our recent slopes again, and ask ourselves in the context of today and tomorrow, what is the best way to to care for them? And uh, yeah, I would say uh, cancel some forest management agreements. Uh, forget this coal mining nonsense. Mm. Uh, build some proper trails for the off roaders and kick some uh, kick some rears for people that don't. Uh, on them, <laughs> and uh, let's increase the number, the, the, the amount of that landscape that's uh, uh, in good shape and is maintained primarily for water production and and outdoor recreation. Yeah, it certainly seems like a a good move considering the stress 
on the park system and the national system. We need to start reimagining places like Kananaskis to absorb some of the visitors and to bring the Crow's Nest Pass up to speed with like its brothers, Canmore and Waterton. And so uh, there is more equal distribution, I suppose, of tourism across the entirety of our of our Rocky Mountain range? Yeah, I am not 100% on page with that. Um, first of all, I don't believe that tourism is a, is a um, legitimate, legitimate use of national parks. It's not in the National Parks Act. The parks are not uh, there for tourists. They're mm. there for Canadians. Um, we've just flooded them with tourists because we like the credit cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing in the National Parks Act that says that we're supposed to be chasing credit cards. We're supposed to be protecting heritage for our future generations of Canadians. Um, and by the same token, I don't think that necessarily asking Kananaskis to absorb some of the crowds will help. Mm. Because if you look at the last year, the National Parks were crowded, and Kananaskis was crowded, and the Crow's Nest Pass was crowded, and you know, um, there's a lot of us. We have a lot of free time. We have a lot of money, a lot of toys, and uh, we can fill up a lot of countryside. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is why do people feel that they need to leave home mm. to recreate? Uh, and uh, I think we've partly answered that uh, already in my lifetime. Uh, when I was a kid in Calgary, I used to bird watch, and I would go down to the Bow River, uh, find any little little corners that weren't developed neighborhoods that uh, might have a have a bird and go looking for them. But in those days, um, the industrial areas were along the rivers and their backyards backed onto the river. And if you went along the river, you would find old crashed up sidewalks used for riprap and mm. trash spilled out there, oil, puddles of oil and other stuff. You know, we didn't value what we had in the city. And probably one reason was because you could go to Banff if you wanted to, or you could go out in the Forest Reserve. Mm. Um, and but it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if your city is a dump, you're going to try and find excuses to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the in the in the last uh, since since the late seventies, they say, uh, and really increasing through the uh, the nineties, both Calgary and Edmonton, and then Medicine Hat and Lethbridge, Red Deer to some extent, discovered their river valleys, discovered their coulee systems, mm-hmm. uh, discovered that there actually is um, nature in the city, and maybe. It needs to be protected, better uh, sustained, and maybe we could put a few trails here and there and picnic areas and and give people access to it. We need to look more holistically at at our landscape, all the pieces of it, the prairie, the mountains, the cities, the towns, the farms, and say, how can we live our best lives in in these places so that we we bring out and sustain the best of the places and the best of ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work. That's a huge project, but it's it's a worthy project, and um, it's the conversations that we don't often have because we let ourselves be seduced by this idea that prosperity and stuff was what it was all about mm-hmm. over the last 30 years during the oil boom. And so we shut down all the conversations that really matter in order to focus on how to get more oil pumped out of the ground so that it'll pump more money into our wallets so that we can fill our yards and houses with more toys and go out and do more harm in our spare time. Mm-hmm. As a segue to this, because you talk about a holistic approach, I can't resist. In in one of your pieces, um, 
you you talk quite a lot about a holistic range management in terms of the cattle industry. And there's a fascinating objection to meat replacement for its high impact on soil and biodiversity and high carbon emissions. And those who make the argument sort of advocate for a beef industry that includes holistic range management, where ecosystem health is considered, where the animal's well-being is considered. Um, and so in reading this, this borrows from the principles behind reintroducing bison. And so my question is, um, can we see holistic range management with cattle as sort of a soft introduction to widespread free-ranging bison? Uh, or do you find that people are in staunch opposition to bison who are in favor of more organic cattle? Well, I'm I'm personally of the view that you sort of, in the foreseeable future, need to be talking about both. Yeah. Um, bison are wild animals. They're native animals. Um, where we raise them on farms, we make them less than what they're meant to be, uh, and we deprive them and the ecosystem of the uh, of the things that actually make bison uh, so important. If they can't range freely. Um, then you're basically creating an artificial uh, and unnatural grazing system, and they can do just as much harm as any other uh, any other herbivore when it's held on a piece of land for too long or for, for too many seasons. Um, they, if you don't let them wallow, if you don't let mm -hmm. them, uh, uh, you know, uh, distribute their bodies their, when they die and their and their manure when they're alive across the landscape, well, then you're 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 basically just using them as replacement cows, mm -hmm. and they're really crappy replacement cows because um, they don't want to be kept in captivity, and, uh, and and they don't really take fences seriously, and, and there's a bunch of issues with trying to manage bison as cattle. There are pieces of the Alberta landscape where I think we should be um, replacing uh, free-ranging cattle with free-ranging bison. It would be lovely if the eastern mm -hmm. slopes were bison range instead of cattle range as they are now. Um, in the forest reserve, cattle uh, production is not a good use of the land because of how it's managed. There's a lot of, lot of damage by uh, uh, on forest reserve grazing lots. It's a wonderful use of the land on in the in the white zone in the uh, non forest reserve areas because of the different management models applied there, the, the grazing lease model. Um, some of our best surviving native prairies are managed under grazing leases for cattle. Mm. So there are places where you could let bison be bison, and geez, you know, we should do it. But the rest of the landscape, the privately owned landscape that we've subdivided into uh, parcels and they got different people owning them, mm. um, I can't quite see how we're going to end up with um, bison there uh, without, like I say, damaging the land and damaging the bison. But we do have uh, another species, the, the, the cow, the domestic cow, which... Um, does take fences seriously, which doesn't uh, attack uh, its handlers nearly as often, which, uh, <laughs> you know, tends to sort of follow orders because we spent centuries training them to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, and that if you manage them well, they can replicate an awful lot of those ecological effects on smaller pieces of land. The problem is that um, we don't think, very few people think of beef production as land management. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it as beef produ production, then you're trying to get the maximum amount of meat out of the least amount of land. 
And that means you start moving into these really bad systems, like the, the feedlot system, where we basically take vegetarian, the food that we, the vegetarians eat, feed it to our cows instead. Um, it allows you to produce an awful lot of beef, but there's absolutely no ecological benefit to that, except perhaps, you know, the cow-calf herds that are maybe out on the on, on native range. So that was the point of my essay, was to say, um, at a global scale, yeah, we need to have this discussion about meat. Uh, I would argue it's not really a discussion about meat. We have to have a discussion about how many how many uh, stomachs we're filling with food. We've got way too many people that want to eat. Mm. And um, and we, do, we have to dedicate, dedicate way too much land to it, and maybe we can't afford to dedicate land to producing meat because it's inefficient, right? So there's there's that whole discussion that needs to happen. But in, at an Alberta scale, if we didn't have our cattle ranching industry that we have today, we wouldn't have the grasslands that are surviving today, and we don't have a lot of them surviving anymore. And on those grasslands, there's all sorts of threatened and endangered species and, and all sorts of cultural meaning and significance that go back to the, you know, mm. before the, the Blackfeet and the Cree and the, and the, and the Stonies. Um, there's all sorts of importance to those native grasslands, and we sustain them simply because we have an economic use for them, producing meat by way of cows, that means that we have people that are going to fight to protect them from the other kinds of economic uses like subdividing them for rural homes or mm. uh, strip mining them or whatever else. So it, it, it's none of these issues is ever complicated, is, is never uncomplicated. But the questions I always ask myself are, um, what ends up at the end of the day being the effects of our choices on the lands and the waters that sustain us and sustain the things that, that, that we share the earth with and that are our future. And if if there's something I'm not comfortable with for other philosophical reasons, but the effect on the land and the water is right, then I have to ask myself, maybe uh, can I find a way to be comfortable with this? And, you know, this is a wonderful discussion because, I mean, uh, I've had a lot of discussions with uh, vegan audiences. Mm-hmm. I, I had a, I launched my wolf book in Edmonton to, uh, to uh, uh, an audience that was all vegans and uh, mm-hmm. And there were some pretty hostile uh, uh, questions and, and, and statements being aimed at me at the end because of the fact that I acknowledge that I'm a hunter and I eat wild meat and that um, I support uh, uh, um, grass, the, the grass-finished uh, range cattle industry. Indeed. Um, people didn't want to hear that. Mm. But what was I talking about? I was talking about conserving the things that we love the most about this province. Mm-hmm. And they aren't going to get conserved if we turn their face over to people that will destroy them. And who's fighting to protect them right now? Certainly who's fighting to protect our eastern slopes from coal? First Nations and ranchers are the most powerful force right now in, yeah. in holding back that crazy coal idea. Indeed. So do you want to say that uh, for some reason you don't like First Nations? Do you want to say that for some reason you don't, you don't like ranchers because they produce cows? Well, um, you know, uh, what are the con- what's the consequences of, of, of that kind of an approach to conservation? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, fascinating. Yeah, it's, um, as you mentioned in the piece, there's a certain greenwashing that needs closer examination from a local perspective. And in our case, we do need, uh, we, we need animals on the land as uh, they were since the last ice age. Um, that's very fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful to you uh, for coming on with me. Uh, Kevin Van Tegum, we've had a a heck of a, a good run with some diversity in topics. Uh, is there anything you want to 
share with listeners just on the way out um, to live by words of wisdom? Uh, this is the time when we either decide that our future will include the best of this place, the best of the wildlife and fisheries and landscapes that, that uh, we treasure, or it won't. And it's going to be our decision. Either way. And if we leave other people to uh, to uh, decide how to manage our forests, uh, decide whether and where to find coal, uh, decide how to produce food, um, we will get the results of their decisions, and they may very well not be something that we're going to be able to look back at with pride. Mm. So this is the time for Albertans to step up. Wonderfully said. Well, I thank you so much for joining me. Again, Kevin Van Tegum, author of Wild Roses Are Worth It, Reimagining the Alberta Advantage. It is available in bookstores in Alberta. Well, that's our episode. Remember, you can catch past episodes of Keeping Green at cjsw.com. Just search Keeping Green. And follow us on Twitter at Keeping underscore Podcast. Remember, you can check out a whole bunch of Kevin Van Tegum's previous books, including Our Place, Changing the Nature of Alberta, The Homeward Wolf, Heartwaters, and Bears Without Fear. I'm Ian Perry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Alberta, keep it green.